Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to What's Important Now from the United States Border Patrol Academy. We talk about things that are important to the men and women of the United States Border Patrol, and I've enjoyed doing this immensely. Every podcast I've got a chance to uh, to do and all the guests that I've had a chance to talk to. And i got to admit, this one's a little bit special for me because I have somebody that's a classmate of mine, went through the U.S. Border Patrol Academy with me, and is actually one of my very dear friends, Mr. Greg Bovino is the chief patrol agent of the El Centro sector, one of the nine sectors along the southwest border with uh, with Mexico. Mr. Bovino, good to have you. Well, Chief Owens, it's good to be here. <laughs> so, so let me tell you a little bit about Mr. Bovino. Uh, he started, like I did, in 1996, November of 1996, with Class 325, the 325th session in Charleston, South Carolina. I was just there a couple days ago. Mm. Got a chance to see where we got off the bus and the dorms that we stayed in. They're getting ready to demolish. They're that old. No kidding. So I asked this of, of all of my guests, and, and I know the answer to this one, so I'm going to see if you remember. What was our class chant? Strength, Justice, Pride, Class 325. That's it exactly. That's it exactly. <laughs> class 325, 25 years later in November. Time flies. Absolutely, it does. Uh, I'll tell you that uh, those are some good times back in, in uh, the academy. Started in 1996, and... Uh, I know all the secrets about Chief Owens, and in case we want to get into that today. Well, I was just sitting here thinking, you do look older. I'll give you that. Well, these are highlights. Yeah. This, I'm not older. Just just some highlights. So for those of you that don't know Chief Bovino, he started at the El Centro Station. We both started at El Centro Sector. I was at Calexico Station. He was at El Centro Station. And he was there, promoted to Senior Patrol Agent, Supervisory Border Patrol Agent. And then he went through the Border Patrol Tactical Unit Selection Course, Class 14, I believe it was. Yes. The uh, easiest class on record, I believe. Oh, that would be 15, I believe, the correspondence course. (laughs) From there, he went on uh, several ORTAC missions, including the Salt Lake City Winter Olympics, went to uh, Ghana, Africa, went to Honduras. What else am I missing? Uh, Egypt, uh, uh, did an Australia tour, several others there. So you have been the representation that this country has sent to these countries. Uh, I feel sorry. <laughs> I would expect nothing less from Chief Owens. He's just mad because he didn't get to go. Uh-huh. So you promoted to assistant chief at headquarters shortly after that in 2004 with the then Special Operations Division in Washington, D.C., and you spearheaded Operation Stone Garden. And I want to talk about that here in a little bit because I don't think a lot of folks know what that is. Uh, you responded to Hurricane Katrina. Hurricane Rita, Wilma, Gustav. You also were uh, key in implementing and developing the continuity of operations plan at headquarters. Another thing I want to talk about, the COOP plan. You were an acting associate chief, then you went on to be the patrol agent in charge of the Blythe Station in Yuma Sector, the patrol agent in charge of the Imperial Beach Station in San Diego Sector, went back to headquarters as the deputy chief of staff, and then you took over command of uh, New Orleans Sector as the chief patrol agent before assuming chief patrol agent of El Centro. A lot of things I want to I want to break down and, and talk about there, but uh, let's let's kick off with Operation Stone Garden. Talk a little bit about what that is and what that does for operations for the Border Patrol. Sure, Operation Stone Garden. Well, it started, Chief, back in uh, about 2004 at Border Patrol headquarters. We had a, a funding outlay, some money that was unspent and Basically, the idea was we need to spend this money and include our state, local, and tribal partners in a sort of a whole-of-government effort 
to increase border security and a couple of other things, increasing communications between Border Patrol and those uh, law enforcement components, uh, as well as intelligence sharing. So back in 2004, we hastily put together an operation. I think we had about three weeks. And um, uh, the name of Operation Stone Garden is kind of interesting there. Uh, we were, uh, we were, it was around Halloween of 2004, so we tried to name it Operation Skeleton. Well, that didn't go over very well, as you might imagine. So, <laughs> Who well, tried to name it Skeleton? Well, the, the, the team. Uh-huh. So uh, we went back to the table, and the uh, uh, someone said, well, you know, naming this operation is the hardest part of the whole thing. It's like hoeing a garden of stone. And then the light bulb went off, Stone Garden. So that's how it got its name. That's the, wow. that's the official story of how it got its name. So, uh, <laughs> so from there, it went from $9.6 million in 2004 to uh, upwards of 80 to, I think it's actually close to $100 million nationwide now. And again, it, it does the same thing now as it, it was, as it was intended to do back in 2004, and that's increased border security. And I think it's done a, a pretty good job since Well, you then. mentioned the whole-of-government approach, and really what it did was it— it brought our partners to bear in the fight. It actually leveraged what they could bring to the table to help us out. And it also helps them in their mission because it gets more of their officers out on patrol as well, right? Absolutely. And it, it also gives them a, a, a key look into what we do. Sometimes uh, they may not know or, or didn't know uh, what was the Border Patrol mission? How do we do our business? And how does our business affect what they do? A lot of times they didn't they didn't really have a uh, a, a good idea of that stone garden sort of bridged that gap and gave them a, a, a pretty good look at what the border patrol does and how we do it. And once they know that they're able to increase their mission set to not only uh, do what they need to do, but to help us with our mission. And I think it's such a good example of how we evolved after nine eleven. Yeah, Everybody realized that we needed to break down the silos of communication and that national security, border security, really law enforcement in general. It's a team effort. It's a team sport. We had to learn to work together and and communicate better. And Stone Garden was an outstanding, still is today, outstanding example of that. One of the other areas that uh, that proved necessary was the concept of continuity of operations. You know, if something happens where you are, how do you maintain operations relocating to another location? You were instrumental in that at Border Patrol headquarters as well. Continuity of Operations, COOP for short. Tell us a little bit about what that entails and why it's important for an organization like us to have that. Well, Chief, uh, uh, a large organization like the Border Patrol, uh, it's very important that um, headquarters and the field and all the components um, in headquarters and the field are able to communicate during, during any scenario, um, not just our regular operations that we would see every day, but if there is and was an emergency and you know what, given, given what's going on uh, these days with hurricanes and, and things like that, that, that coop, that continuity of operations is so vitally important. Instead of siloing uh, an operation at one given sector and not communicating with uh, neighboring sectors or headquarters, the continuity of operations brings everyone together with uh, sort of a common operating picture, a common language of how we're going to operate in any scenario. So a good example might be, let's just say, out in the field, Grand Forks, good example. I was up there, and every single year they have a flood season. And sometimes that uh, prevented access to some of the stations. And so you can't just shut down operations and 
and not do what you need to do just because you don't have access to your station, you have to move elsewhere. You have to have a plan to set up and operate elsewhere. Same thing in a hurricane environment. You did that for headquarters. Absolutely, for headquarters, and then we pushed that to the field. 20 Border Patrol sectors, um, every sector needed to identify those locations that you speak about. What's going to happen if we if we can't utilize sector headquarters? Where are we going to go? How are we going to go there? Um, so all 20 sectors and then headquarters as well. See, and these are things that are neat to me because they are largely behind the scenes, and most folks would never even know that they exist until we need them. But the amount of planning and preparation and thought that goes into making sure they're there when we need them can be monumental. I know that you spent a lot of time developing those, and so did some uh, some other good folks up there at headquarters. Sure, it, it, it took a lot of time, but it, it was something that was needed. I know that Chief Robert Garcia was instrumental in the coop as well. And uh, it, it took a little time, but you know what? Um, look at where we're at now with, with coops and how we operate during emergencies. I think we're, we're, we're doing pretty good. So, folks, if you can't, uh, and you definitely wouldn't know it to listen to him or look at him. He's actually got two master's degrees. Mr. Ovino, he, he graduated from the National War College with a, a master's degree in national security strategy. He graduated with a, a master's in public administration from Appalachian State University. I didn't know there was such a thing. That's Appalachian State uh, okay, University. Okay. And you, uh, bachelor's degree, magna cum laude in National Resources Management and Forestry from Western Carolina University. Pretty impressive, all things being equal. I got I to gotta give it to you. You also did the CDP Leadership Institute. You graduated from the, the SES Candidate Development Program. So I've actually, in all kidding aside, I've seen the things that you write, the products that you put forth, and it actually is very impressive. And we're lucky to have people like this on our team doing things like this because when it counts, they're, they're there when we need them. And add to that education, I counted up five different sectors if you count headquarters that you've been a part of. Does that sound right? Yeah, somewhere close to there. El Centro, Headquarters, Yuma, San Diego, New Orleans. So you've been around. You've got a chance to kind of see what uh, what the Border Patrol is all about. Graduated from Board Tech. You've been a Senior Patrol Agent, Supervisory Border Patrol Agent, Assistant Chief, Associate Chief, Patrol Agent in charge of two different locations, and a Chief Patrol Agent for two different locations. Any particular place or location strike you as, uh, as your favorite? You know, I get asked that question a lot, but it, it all goes, it, it all boils down to what you make of, of where you're at. I think of all those locations, there's good points, even with headquarters Border Patrol, mm-hmm. that, uh, that that have been good. You can make a difference anywhere you go. It's just how you're going to apply yourself. So I think every one of those locations would be an equal for me. And I know that's, that's not a cop-out answer, Chief, but... Um, Hey, when it comes to promulgating border security and um, putting bad guys in jail, uh, you can make that happen anywhere. No, and it's definitely not a cop-out answer because that kind of goes with what we tell the trainees when they get here. This, The door is wide open. The Border Patrol has opportunities. I say it every time. If you get bored in the U.S. Border Patrol, you're simply not trying. There's a lot of fun to be had. There's a lot of good things to be done, and it's just if you're willing to get out there and experience it, and, and you definitely have. Would you recommend that path to uh, to others as well? You know, uh, I, I would recommend experiencing experiencing as much as you possibly can in your Border Patrol career. Uh, as you said, there are so many opportunities. You told that to the class this morning. And so many opportunities, so many varied opportunities. And uh, experience as much as you can. Get as much experience as you can. And uh, it, it'll, uh, it, it'll definitely pay off in the future, both 
professionally and in, in your personal life as well. So where you grew up at Blowing Rock, North Carolina, I mean, I, I know they just recently got the World Wide Web and, and they didn't have telephones <laughs> until recently. How did you find the Border Patrol? How did, how did you get to the Border Patrol from North Carolina? You know, it's a, a, a semi-interesting story. I had a, a distant family member that was involved in the production of The Border with Jack Nicholson. It was actually my great uncle, Neil Hartley. He was a, a producer, produced the movie, and we all know what that movie was about. So uh -huh. I thought maybe I'd get a little bit on the other side and uh, take it back the other way. So uh, uh, it got me interested in The Border Patrol. Uh, so you I, actually knew what it was, The Border Patrol? I actually did, yes. Okay. See, I didn't. Coming from Oklahoma until I saw it on, on the Internet. Now, when we talk about backwardness, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I think you have me beat there. And Where was it? Tahlequah or Oklahoma? Uh, Tahlequah. Tahlequah, excuse me. Yes. Tahlequah. So you found the Border Patrol. Uh, you did a brief stint with the military, did you not? Yes. So you were also a lieutenant, a commissioned lieutenant in the U.S. Army. Yes. So two master's degrees, bachelor's degree, commissioned lieutenant, Joined the Border Patrol 25 years later. You are a, a chief patrol agent, one of the highest-ranking positions we've got, coming from a small town in North Carolina. i got to give it to you. I'm a little bit impressed. Well, thank you. Some of us must have slipped through the cracks. So, <laughs> I want to talk about our, our academy life just uh, real quick because you and I were in the exact same Spanish group. And if you can imagine, it, listening to both of us talk, <laughs> we were not native speakers, and it did not come naturally to us. Oh, no. <laughs> you got a chance to get out there and see what the academy's like today. You've been doing a uh, tour of, of how the training is. What do you see different compared to when you and I went through? You know, I, I think uh, our academy classes or our Spanish classes were, you know, we're going to sit there and, and, and we're going to learn verbs and tenses and things like that, which is important, no doubt. But how we apply that to the field is so very important because a field environment is not a classroom environment. It's, it's ever-changing. So... Uh, what I see here now is these these, these uh, trainees are put in a, a scenario or a situation that they may well encounter in the field. And I just watched one just now a couple of minutes ago, and I was very impressed with the way that was put together, the, um, the, the way they were able to grasp the Spanish that they had learned in a field environment. Because, as you know, in, in a classroom environment, we, we may learn the, the pluperfect tense of a Spanish verb, but... When somebody's screaming at you in the field or somebody's in trouble or somebody needs help, that kind of goes out the window. So what I saw today here at the academy, doing a fantastic job of immersing those students in Spanish in, in, in a manner that I think they'll remember and, and learn. And I'm actually seeing it in the field when they actually come out to the field. Um, they're, they're doing pretty well. Same here. It, I think back to when we went through, and, and, I, and I was the guy with the three-by-five note cards trying to memorize words and conjugate verbs. You, you know what? I'll stop you there. He's the guy with the three-by-five note cards, but he actually, we were in Spanish group five, I believe. Four. Uh, four, yeah. excuse me, four. And uh, because he studied so hard, I think he went up to two. Yes. Up to the higher Spanish group, the, the ones of us that continued not to be that good remained in four, but uh, uh, that was pretty impressive. I remember well, those those little note cards. I had the had. added pressure of a newborn child and making sure I put food on the table for him, so I had a <laughs> very strong motivation to, to study. But I do think about, I felt like I, I learned a lot in the academy, and, and probably you too, and then I remember hitting the field, and I remember the first person that I had to speak to in Spanish out in the field, and it all went out the window. I mean, it was it was like they were speaking a completely different 
language than even Spanish. And I hope that the way that we do things now changes that for the trainees when they hit the field because they are actually, as you said, in a scenario, a field scenario, and they're having to apply it under pressure so they're better prepared than we were when we hit the field. Absolutely. I think you're right. Uh, yeah, and that's, you know, that, that's something that, that we need given what, you know, what's going on in the Border Patrol now. A lot of folks coming across the border, our agents are, are, are strung out, and they could very well be in a scenario um, just a few days after arriving in the field that they're going to need to rely on that Spanish. Absolutely. One of the few law enforcement organizations that requires somebody to be proficient in the Spanish language and one of the things that makes us unique as an agency. Yes. So I'm going to go back to the different places that you've been because you also have the benefit of having been at a coastal sector that doesn't get talked about a lot and, of course, on the southwest border. Do a little compare and contrast of what the mission is over on the coastal side compared to the southwest border that everybody sees on TV. Sure. I'll tell you, when I, I didn't really know what to expect in the New Orleans sector. Uh, you know, didn't hear a lot about it. So I went in there with, with open eyes, but I'll tell you, I was really, um, one, I was impressed with the caliber of employees that we have in our, in our coastal sectors, the Ramies, the, the Miamis, the New Orleans. These folks do it all down there. They don't have the, the benefit of, say, a large staff or a prosecutions unit, prosecutions department, things like that. Uh, if they get a case, for instance, from the very beginning of that case all the way through court proceedings, they're involved in every single aspect of that case. The agents. And the agents are. Mm-hmm. And they become experts at, at just about everything. They're a jack of all trades and experts at all of them also. <laughs> so uh, v- very impressive down there. Their skill sets, they need the same skill sets as, as, as an agent on the southwest border. But, um, again, they're not, um, uh, they're not as specialized. They need to be able to do everything because there's so few of them. And you say you say smaller, but the the sectors are are minuscule by comparison to a, a real Grand Valley sector. When you were in New Orleans, you were dealing with a lot of the traffic that came from the Rio Grand Valley, so that communication across sector lines was was critical, especially when it came to target enforcement. I know you did a little bit of that there in New Orleans as well. Good targets of opportunity there. Absolutely, a- absolutely. And in, in in talking about the Southwest border, we encountered groups and individuals from across the southwest border. And I'll tell you what, when we talk about border security and then community safety, being in one of those coastal border sectors, some people call that an interior sector, being in one of those sectors and actually seeing what crosses that border and where it ends up was rather sobering, to to, to say the least. I know in, in, I believe it was 2019, we apprehended five child rapists in Baton Rouge alone, most recent entries across the border. So what happens on that border doesn't stay at the border. That affects Ma and Pa America. I'm glad you said that because that's what I was getting to. It, the, the idea of border security or what goes on on our borders, it's not confined to or isolated to the border communities. It affects us all nationwide. Absolutely. Yes. The, uh, the job that these men and women have going out there and doing this job every single day, keeping bad things and bad people from coming in the country. That's what we're supposed to be out there doing. And, of course, we have a humanitarian side when we have people that come in looking for a better way of life, and, and we do rescues, and, and we're dealing with the uh, influx of people claiming asylum right now. But at the end of the day, what we want is for those men and women to get back out on patrol to go after the bad things that are trying to come into this country because they are there. We see them. We see those reports. Despite everything that you see going on right now, what's being talked about 
on the news, all the other stuff, the narcotic seizures, the criminals that are, have been convicted of heinous crimes, the tractor trailer loads where uh, they're, they're putting migrants at the back of these tractor trailers and locking them in there, the stash houses, that all is still going on every day, is it not? Absolutely. And I think one of the most important things that, that we can do and something we certainly strive in the El Centro sector is to keep our agents, one, motivated, and two, down there on that border, sifting through uh, that mass that's coming across so that we can identify, apprehend, and, and resolve some of those really heinous actors that are coming across the border, and they are coming across the border, no doubt. So you went, we, we started in El Centro, we talked about that, then you bounced around all over. What was it like going back to El Centro? You, you went there as a trainee, and then you went back as the chief. That had to be cool. We have classmates that are still there. Absolutely. It was, I'll tell you, it was, it was special to be able to go back to, to where I started, uh, a little ironic, and I'll tell you what, some things did change. I couldn't find the border one time when I, uh, when I went back to El Centro, believe it or not, because uh, you remember we patrolled some, some areas of that border a little north mm-hmm. before there was a fence. There was no fence, not even a line in the sand. So where that actual border ended up being when the fence, when the, when the wall went up, was a little different than what I remembered. So I go driving down to the border, I'm like, well, where's the border? So it was uh, a little different, but I tell you, a lot of a lot of good folks there in El Centro, is, as you course, remember. Yeah. And I think one of the one of the things that's not changed when we talk about El Centro is the community. The community has always been supportive and receptive of the border patrol, and that includes the community on both sides of the border. Mm-hmm. Not only in the Imperial Valley, the the Calexicos, the El Centros, the Brawleys, and the Imperials, but also Mexicali to our south. Mexicali is huge, 1.1 million people. You remember that, Jason? Yep. And those relationships have remained strong and even stronger now. And that is so very important when we talk about um, border security and what we do on the border. We've had this thing called COVID-19. Uh, that affects people on both sides of the border, sort of gives us that common operating picture. And it's actually, in some ways, allowed us to work uh, even better. Uh, with our international partners. I remember when you and I were there as agents, and it was very common on the weekends, we'd go over to Mexicali and have lunch or go see a movie. I mean, it, that was the norm. People came and came and went all the time, and, uh, and it's a shame to see that that had stopped. And I know largely because of COVID and, and some of the uh, being overcome by some of the events that have happened. I think we'll ever get back to that. You know, I, I think we will. Um, I know in a, in a professional sense, we, we, we've got some excellent communication. We were actually at a softball game just last week. We played the Mexicali Police Department. And, Did you uh, win or lose? Uh, won one game, lost lost one game. So uh, we're, we're tied now. So I think we'll do that again. <laughs> and then they've actually came north to our side. We actually did a horse ride with the mayor of Mexicali, who's now the governor of Baja California, and um, some, some good relations there, but, but as you said, COVID's really, it's really put a damper on that. So when I think when that's over, I do see um, a, 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 a little, uh, I do see a return to that. So you brought up a good point. So it, <clears throat> border security affects communities on both sides of the border. It's to everybody's benefit to have an orderly and safe and secure border. And, and I believe our, our partners to the South feel that way as well. And a lot of times their efforts go unnoticed in what they do and and keeping everybody safe. That's not something that we can do alone. And I think we rely on our government of Mexico partners more than most people realize. I think that's a, a hidden part of border security. And you're right. I don't think people realize that. 
you know, it's to the point now where we do something called mirrored patrols. We patrol on the north side, the Mexicans patrol on the south side. And we'll do that in areas that perhaps we're having a problem or the Mexicans are having a problem. And it's so powerful when both both nations are on both sides of that border. So uh, a, a lot of things go into that. We've got something called the Foreign Operations Branch. Mm-hmm. And that branch, is it's a branch of the Border Patrol, and their sole responsibility is to ensure that our communication and our coordination with the government of Mexico partners is taking place. I know in El Centro, when we talk to our, our partners in Mexico, hey, they're just as concerned with, with COVID and other things as we are. They don't want folks transiting through their areas and bringing COVID to the residents of their fine city. Um, same thing with, with bad people and bad things. I don't think the Mexicans want terrorists living amongst them either. Well, and they also, and everywhere I've been, they, they have their own problem set, especially if there is cartel activity, if there's a you know, criminal presence there on their side of the border. A lot of times the situation they're dealing with is much worse than ours. They're, they're literally getting in gunfights with cartel members, depending on where we're talking about. That's on their mind. And you hear about it, and, and we're so close to it, yet so far away, but that's their daily life that we haven't necessarily had to deal with because the border for them isn't as secure as we need it to be. Yes, all the more important to keep our focus on border security. That rule of law along the border is is all important. And again, it goes back to what we, we talked about a few minutes ago. What happens on the border, that rule of law on the border is so important for the rest of America because what happens on the border doesn't necessarily and oftentimes does not stay on the border. It's headed somewhere else. And, you, you know, I, um, I keep thinking of a, a situation. It was back when I was the chief in, in Louisiana. Uh, one of those child rapists that we had apprehended had served over 100 months in prison for raping a child in the state of North Carolina, my home state. Sort of hit home with me had there. To, yeah. And guess where that individual was headed back to? When we caught him. Back to your home state. Back to the home state of North Carolina. So when we talk about cartels and cartel violence and the bad things that happen on the border, border security is such an important component of community safety and national security. And uh, I think it's proven, uh, it's been proven time and again. And I'm assuming that that sexual predator in question, or those five that you're talking about, were here illegally. They were here illegally. Most were actually recent entrants across the border. I think the one from North Carolina, the one that was headed to North Carolina was from, I believe, one of the Northern Triangle countries. And that's important to realize. I mean, that's, and we acknowledge, they don't make up the vast majority of the folks that, uh, that, that enter illegally, but they do exist. And that's why you need border security. You want to make sure that, uh, that those folks are not allowed to prey upon people here in this country. And that's one of the many benefits of having border security. I want to switch topics a little bit, and I want to talk about the Border Patrol specifically. I talked to you about how you found the Border Patrol, what made you join it. 25 years later, so what is it, about a uh, quarter of your life? I want to see what uh, what it means to you. What has the Border Patrol meant to you as a 25-year veteran wearing this uniform? Well, uh, when you put it in those terms, a quarter century, that's, uh, that's, that's rather stark. But um, I'll I tell you what, uh, I would say that Border Patrol has been my life's work. And, and I will say that, and I'll say that with pride, that the Border Patrol has been my life's work. And uh, it, it will be the, you know, the defining factor in, in, in who I am and, and, and what I've done and what I will do. But um, I'll tell you what, uh, 
and, and we talked about this a little bit this morning with the uh, the border border patrol class you addressed, but uh, I think it all has to deal with personal responsibility. Personal responsibility, um, taking the security of the state or the security of the nation and making that your personal responsibility is, I think that's very important. And I take that seriously. And you know what? I think every year that goes on, Jason, uh, it gets more serious. Perhaps it's because, you know, after a quarter of a century, as you put it, we've seen a lot of things um, related to the Border Patrol and realize exactly how important that is. So making border security one's personal responsibility is, um, is uh, yeah, I think that's all important. I want to point something out uh, that others don't know, but when you say that personal responsibility for the safety of everybody here in this country, you mean that about people, whether they agree with you or not. Absolutely. We talk about perhaps a lot of people don't know what goes on on the border or, you know, our Mexican partners. They may not know, but as American citizens and folks that live in America, uh, I think they, they do have that right to a secure nation, a secure community, a secure family, and an environment that's enjoyable to live and work in. And being part of that is is uh, being part of the border patrol is is making that so. See, for me, what's uh, what's so great about being part of the law enforcement profession, and especially being in the border patrol, is you're around people that it's entirely selfless. They do this job, they protect everyone, even people that that hate them, even people that despise them, even people that that don't understand but think that they do. I know people wearing this uniform would still go out and risk their lives every single day to keep even those people safe because it's about the mission and it's about serving something bigger than ourselves. Who wouldn't want to be a part of a group of people like that? And for all the things I can say about you, I know that's true about you. And that's uh, one of the reasons why I I let you associate with me. (laughs) (laughs) Folks, if you haven't guessed, uh, we've always been pretty competitive. Uh, Chief did graduate. It pains me to say this. It pains me to say this. You wouldn't believe it. Number one in his class, but I did beat him hands down in PT, and I never let him forget that. Hey, you were number one in the class. Hey, great job, Chief Owen. Great job. You did great in Spanish. Uh, that's good, <laughs> but I beat you in PT. Is, is that correct? In firearms? That's correct. What about firearms? Most of the time, I did mm-hmm. that also. Okay. So. <laughs> I want to talk about honor first. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Switching topics here. Switching topics. <laughs> So that's our, our guiding principle, and we talked about that with the new class today. It was class, you were here for Class 1183 coming on board and, and getting their, uh, their first talk with us, and you actually came up on stage and had a chance to share with them what honor first was for you as a guiding principle. Now you have the men and women in the field out there listening, and you have some other trainees that will be listening as well. Tell them about what honor first is to you and, and how you define it. Sure. Honor first uh, – you know, when we talk about it, it's, it's our state of being as Border Patrol agents, our state of being. And by that, I'm talking about what, what's the essence of being a Border Patrol agent, being in the Border Patrol. What's the essence of the Border Patrol? So for me, we already talked about it a little bit, personal responsibility. Uh, it's my personal responsibility uh, to, to make the nation a safer place. That's what I, that's what I look at Honor First as being. Now, everyone's going to have a different definition but it's all towards the towards the same goal, and that's uh you know an organization uh, uh, towards the finest organization in law enforcement, the most premier, primary, and professional law enforcement agency in existence. 
that all is part and parcel of honor first. I couldn't say it in one word or one sentence. It's just the essence of, of being a Border Patrol agent and being in the Border Patrol. It's what makes us uh, what we are, and it's what makes us uh, it, you know, do such a, a fine job every day. So I'm sensing you're proud to wear that uniform. Absolutely. So we refer to ourselves as the Green family. It goes beyond being a part of an agency, and we, and we instill that in the trainees from day one as soon as they get here because it's important to us. I know you've had a sense of what that's been about because you come from North Carolina, and if I'm not mistaken, your, uh, your beautiful better half comes from the uh, area of Baltimore, Maryland. Pennsylvania. Actually. Pennsylvania. And, uh, and you have now a daughter that is uh, a part of this Green family as well. We've all been the beneficiary of surrounding ourselves with, with this family. For trainees that are coming in, they have a rough go of it. The first, the first year, I would say, is, is the most difficult for any Border Patrol agent, especially during that trainee time. And the adjustment can, can be a difficult one, not just for them, but for the families as well. I had my experience with it. Talk about yours, Egg. Can you get through it? Is it, a, is it, a, is it too tough to overcome? What's the, what's the, the secret? to make it through that first year as a Border Patrol agent? You, you, you know, uh, uh, certainly, first and foremost, you can get through it, uh, especially if you made it through, uh, <laughs> Chief, than I, I think anyone else can. But uh, there, there, there's a saying that uh, that uh, I like. It's, I think, Robert A. Heinlein, he wrote Starship Troopers, said this, that which is given has no value. That which is given has no value. So to the prospective Border Patrol agents and the folks that, uh, are in the academy, or maybe you're freshly out of the academy. Hey, it, if it was going to be given to you, it would be worthless. But you've earned it, and just like with anything else in life, if you earn it, it has value. And the value of the the green family, or the the green machine, or the green team, uh, is priceless once you earn it. So, I would say jump in with both feet in the fire. Hard way is the best way. The hard way is the best way. Jump in with both feet in the fire and go to it. I know that uh, after you get done with the, the, the trainees here at the academy, they come to El Centro and we talk to them and, and sort of promulgate what, what you've said here at the academy. Um, so talk a little bit about that. What, what is life like for the trainee that newly graduates the academy and, and hits their, their home sector, their home station? What can they expect? Sure. They go from this, this rigid academy type environment to, to a straight to a field environment. They're, they're, they're injected straight into the field under a field training officer. And what we're doing there is fine-tuning many of the things they've learned here, um, giving them some, ex, some additional uh, tools to, to use in the field so that they can do their job. And then a lot of it's support. Now, they may not know they're getting support because they're still trainees, mm -hmm. but they're getting support. They're uh, making friends and developing relationships with other Border Patrol agents. Um, they're uh, developing mentors within the Border Patrol. That's so very important. And you can see that from the first day that, that, that they arrive at a, at a Border Patrol sector. They're starting to develop those relationships and those mentors that are so very vital and very important for progression in their career. I know you and I had some fantastic mentors. Yep. Uh, I'll tell you, I, I still think back to some of the things that I talked with, 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 with some of the folks that I looked up to, and um, they're just as valid now as they were then. So that's what these new trainees can expect. 
And that's what I see happening when they show up at, at El Centro. I think that's, a, that, that's great advice. I, anywhere you go, you, you have to keep your eyes open and, and pay attention. And, and I tell them to become a sponge and just soak up every <clears throat> ounce of knowledge and everything that you see to become the, the best you can. So number one, you can do the job well. Number two, you can do it safely. I remember one of, uh, I think one of our mentors in common was a, a chief of the sector at the time named Tom Walker. Mm-hmm. He graduated from Bortac Class 1. And I can remember working a swing shift, which for us, if you don't know, ladies and gentlemen, that generally means the evening hours. And so you're not typically done before midnight. So if you want to go to the gym and work out, you have to do it either before or after. Well, I would always do it after. And I can remember going to the, the training building there in El Centro, and that was the, the gym that we had access to. And it was late at night. And there was Chief Walker working out, already in his 50s, when uh, nobody else was. That, for me, was somebody to look up to. That was a role model because all that he had done in his career, he had already hit a pinnacle, but he still strived to be his best every day, no matter what position he held. There are people like that all over the Border Patrol. They abound. You find those people. You connect yourself to them. You learn all you can from them. And you try and be like them. Absolutely. Um, uh, Speaking of Chief Walker, I think you remember... Uh, when us new agents were in the field, sometimes this this Tahoe would show up unmarked, and who would get out to help us work a group but Chief Walker? How impressive was that? So I know you do this when you're in the field, Chief, and, and I certainly attempt to do it myself is, hey, get into the fight with the agents. We're all agents. At, at, in, in our heart of hearts, we're always agents. First and, and foremost. Um, uh, get out there and get in the fight. And uh, I'll tell you what, that, that was one of the, the leadership principles and one of those mentoring moments I'll never forget from, from Chief Walker. Outstanding. So you have everybody here as a captive audience. They, they have to listen to you whether they want to or not. What words of wisdom can you impart on people as they embark on this journey, people that are out there in the field right now, things that you wish you could tell them? Tell them now. Sure. Uh, first off is your head's kind of shiny there, Chief. So... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I've still got mine. But uh, uh, anyway, uh, I think that having an open mind and being flexible is all the more important now than ever. Um, don't become discouraged at the naysayers. There's always going to be a naysayer out there. I'm not discouraged about a naysayer, and I know Chief Owens is not discouraged about the naysayers. Um, that's the fog and the friction. Cast that aside and continue with your mission. And that's making America a safer place, our family safer. Um, you're making a good living for your family, and you're having a little fun doing it. I tell you, we've got such a unique organization, a unique skill set, a unique mission. I'll tell you what, every time I go to the field, there's something, there's something new that I see and learn. So those of you that, that, are, that are hitting the field now, or maybe you've been there a while, keep an open mind. Be flexible. Um, and I think that uh, especially now more than ever, uh, that'll see you towards towards your goals, and it will help us with organizational goals. Profound words of wisdom from a surprising source. Chief Greg Bovino, my brother, my good friend, thanks for being here today, sharing time with us. Good to be with you. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to do it again for another episode of What's Important Now. You stay safe out there. Keep your heads up. Honor first. Honor first. <laughs>